Okay, yes, ah, there we go. Hey, well, welcome this morning. Uh, welcome to Willow Park South, and uh, boy, kind of getting a little deja vu because uh, uh, for a whole number of years, I was an associate pastor at Willow Park, and I would preach at uh, 33 and then run over here, and there would be video in different places, and things were done a little differently in those days, but I have had many, many opportunities and uh, to, to preach here and, and share God's Word. So it's kind of a 10 years on to be here. It's kind of a weird moment for me, a wonderful moment, but a weird moment. Uh, kind of feels like everything's kind of run back in time. So um, uh, yeah, just a huge welcome uh, and also love and greetings from uh, Metro community. Uh, they will be meeting uh, in the summer. We just meet one time and uh, they will be meeting starting in about two minutes, so uh, not that we're that punctual, but uh, um, they, will, uh, they will be worshiping together uh, and thinking of you as well, uh, if they know I'm here. This uh, incredible rich history between, uh, obviously, as Brad said, Willow Park and Metro, and if you didn't know this, if, you, if you're kind of new to Willow Park or you've not kind of picked up on this story, that Metro was planted out of Willow Park, uh, and about 10 years ago, um, that, that journey began in earnest, and... Um, uh, you know, today uh, we just have been witness to an incredible story of God's goodness um, over, over the last decade. I'll explain some of that as we go, some stories. Uh, I just poked my head into kids' ministry. They, they look like they're having a ton of fun in there. They have balloons and crafts, so I feel really bad that I haven't given you something to do this morning. So I'm just going to have to do it with stories and kind of try and keep you interested. But what a blessing this church is. As I met with Glenn, Phil... Uh, you know, others, as we've talked over the years, I don't know if we've done a very good job. And I don't just mean them, I mean all of us as leadership. I don't know if we've done a fantastic job of constantly reminding you, uh, as the family of Willow Park, what an incredible privilege and blessing it is to be part of a church that plants another church. And I, and I hope you never lose sight of that. I hope you're always reminded that over the course of history, this church family has had the boldness and the courage to plant churches in the face of opposition, in the face of risk, in the face of financial challenges. Uh, and that is a huge, huge blessing um, and a huge kind of heritage to hold on to. So may you be encouraged by that. We never forget that at Metro. We don't always get a chance to come and share that, but we never forget it. So here's where I want to go with this morning. I want to focus on Luke chapter 6. We're going to share some stories. I'm going to share with you a little bit of what's going on today in our community. Hopefully encourage you, inspire you, challenge you. And so here's my thesis. uh, That when we love the unlovable, when we sacrifice generously with no thought of return, when we refuse to condemn, when we press deeper into kingdom community and learn the patient rhythms of grace, then our generous and merciful Lord overwhelms us with unexpected riches, not just in eternity, but here, now, in this present time and age. And as we draw the most vulnerable into our center, we encounter riches, not riches that we might expect or anticipate, but unexpected gifts, usually from the hands of those that the world least likely expects to receive them from. So uh, if you have a Bible, I'd love you to turn to Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 38. And let's read them together. Uh, I think, I, yeah, I have, we have a few technical issues. The slides aren't quite formatted correctly, but hopefully you can read them and, and it will be good. This is verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Would you pray with me? Let's, uh, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, would you just meet us in this moment, even in the stillness, in the quiet, even as we uh, open your word and as we share, God, with the noises of our lives and the conversations and the burdens that we carry. Lord, each of us is in a different place today. We come here with our, our mess, our pain, our illnesses. I know there's many in this family who are ill terribly at the moment. We lift them to you. God, we, we have loss. We have grief. All of those things cloud our minds and our hearts. So in this moment, would you just free us of those things that we might truly be present? Would your spirit move, God? asking for something supernatural and miraculous. We're asking that you would break through, change us forever. Lord, we don't want to leave here the same people that we arrived this morning. Do something permanent, something lasting, something indelible in our spirits and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, some, some people kind of call this the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's actually the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, it's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's those beatitude kind of ideas. And I love this teaching because it's one of the best places to go and find out what Christianity really looks like when it's lived out. What does it actually mean to live a Christian life? How do we announce the kingdom of God in our communities, in our friendships, our neighborhoods, our homes, other people's homes? What does it mean to actually announce the kingdom of God in a world that is seeking authenticity when there's a lot of noise and a lot of information and there's a podcast and videos and YouTube, people talking about Jesus or they, their interpretation of scripture. In a world that's endemically individualistic and, and ritually sort of destitute, and relationally destitute. One of the problems with this text is there's so many trees that we might kind of miss the forest. We can get lost in guidelines for money and sex and relationships and, and honesty and promises it's all very important. It's all interesting. But because of that, we kind of miss the context sometimes. So first of all, when you look at something like Matthew chapter 5, which is that Sermon on the Mount, or you look at Luke chapter 6, it's really important that we don't read it individualistically or moralistically. Now, what do I mean by that? By individualistically, I mean this. The Sermon on the Mount talks about how we should live, how to conduct our relationships, our attitude to money, and so on. And in our society... We've developed this kind of mindset. We live in this individualistic, privatized society. And most of us say, hey, when we read that, we're like, oh, good. 
That affirms everything in me that just wants to tell people to get lost and tell them to mind their own business. I have personal decisions to make. I don't want anyone else to have any, any say in any of that. But what this stuff is really about is kingdom. God's kingdom lived out on earth. In other words, Jesus is talking about an alternate community. He's talking about a community that should look different. A community that's not ruled by the world's values of power and success and acclaim and approval and appearance and prestige, but by the kingdom of God's values of sacrifice and service. At Metro, we talk a lot about the fact that we are a values-based community, not a rules-based institution. So many of our community are used to engaging with rules-based institutions. But we have been invited into conversations by God through all sorts of avenues in places like businesses and civic institutions, social agencies, with individuals, police forces, arts communities, universities, even provincial government authorities in in talking about legislation around how we care for people who are poor and vulnerable. And all of those that we partner with in one way or another have become deeply curious about what Christian community and Christian life looks like lived this way. And, and don't, don't be under any illusions. We are under a lot of scrutiny because of those conversations. We recognize we're being watched all the time. Uh, for examples of that would be like we, we work with the downtown business community in Kelowna doing workshops for business owners about how to connect with people who are destitute or people who are on the street and poor, how to engage with them at a human level, speaking to their God-given dignity. Uh, we're part of an or, or organization called PIC, which is a collection of all the social agencies in the city we're the only church in that group. There's 35 social agencies in one church. We're part of something called PhD, which is Partners for Healthy Downtown, which is managed by the, the RCMP. And again, we're the only church in that group with all these other organizations. Incredible opportunity to bring light and salt and, and love into that situation, but we're under scrutiny. Why do you do the things you do? What does a Christian life look like? What does Christian community look like? And right now we're partnering with the city in something called Journey Home, which is a task force to kind of bring about a strategy to make sure everyone who needs housing gets that housing and support. And we have undertaken a mapping project throughout the whole summer to map what the faith community has in terms of resources and how we can bring them to bear for the common good of our city. Again, that's something that kind of has caught the eye of the city and municipal authorities. And they're like, hey, why would a church do this? In church life, we're quick to throw around phrases like missional and authentic and accountable. But to what extent are we truly accountable? How much do we actually know about one another? How does this neighborhood around here truly see and experience Willow Park South? For example, in Hebrews chapter 3, it says, Exhort one another daily, lest your heart get hard. And so I want to ask you a question this morning. Who's exhorting you daily who's coming to you every day and challenging you to keep your heart soft who's exhorting you as a follower of jesus for example who are you talking to as a follower of jesus about how much money to spend on yourself and how much money to give away to those in need we hear that and we're like what i i don't want to talk to anyone else about that that's a deeply private thing but is it A typical Canadian will say, well, how I spend my money is my business. The church is in danger of losing sight of what it means to be a community, a counterculture. 
Jesus is calling us here in these words in Scripture to be part of a community. And until you're part of a community, and I don't just mean visiting church on Sunday or even every Sunday, faithfully or religiously, but actually being part of a community of people who are saying, we're going to live this out together, then you're not actually living out the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. So we can't read this as individuals. It's, re- it's written and shared for people who would live as a community. There's a story from AD 252. I don't know if you're a historian, if you like history, but the city of Carthage in the Roman world, uh, this is a famous story, was ravaged by a plague. Carthage was one of the centers of, of arts and culture and community. A lot of the movements in history began in Carthage in that time. And suddenly this big city that was so important and thought of themselves as being so important was ravaged by a plague. And as history records it, people were dying left, right, and center, so much so that they were just being left in the street, rotting. People were fleeing the city in droves because they were afraid of catching the plague. And a a Christian leader at the time named Cyprian sent the word out to all the followers of Jesus and said, gather in the town center. Don't run. Come right into the heart of the city We're going to stay here. We're going to look after people. Now, you need to know that Carthage was also a center of persecution for Christians. It was a place in which it was known that if you were a Christian, you were likely to be tortured or killed or persecuted in some way. And so Cyprian says this. He says, if we're going to do what Jesus did, who though he was rich became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich then I call you now to fan out across the city and give personal and financial care and aid to those in need. Not whether they're Christians or not, don't differentiate. You just give to them. You look after them. And I don't even care if they're your enemies or not, whether they've hurt you or not. You care for them. And we're called here to do what our Master Jesus did. And and this isn't just me paraphrasing This is a fascinating story that has historical evidence. You can actually go to Rome and see letters that were written by the governor of that city to Caesar at the time. The Roman emperor Julian tried to kill off Christianity and he thought it was a disgusting sort of pagan, uh, um, a sort of illegal religion and he wanted to revive the pagan traditions of the time. And he was so frustrated. In this letter, he writes to the governor and says, what, you know, why, why do they keep growing and thriving? Why is the growth of the Christian faith so prolific? And the governor writes back and says these words. He says, their success lies in their charity to all. They take care of not only their own poor, but ours as well. See, it was one of those things that gave the early believers success in the world that, that really looked at them as being odd and strange. It was one of the things that gave them power, not in a worldly sense, but in a spiritual sense. It's one of the things that befuddled the world and changed their attitudes towards Christians. So we shouldn't read it individualistically, but we should, not, we should also not read these words moralistically. Which means that when we read and we see Jesus saying, here's how I want you to live, it's natural for us to go, okay, so I think there's a transaction here. If I live this way and I please God, then God's got to bless me. He's got to treat me well. He's got to give me stuff. He's got to be kind to me. And he'll give me his salvation and grace. But that's not what it says here. See, religion, world-made, man-made religion, is outside in. If I do these things on the outside, then God will give me his grace in here. But following Jesus is about inside out. Following Jesus means only 
when I recognize I already have his love and his acceptance and his blessing, his grace, a new heart because of what he's done for me, then from that will I be able to live out this way. The main purpose of this passage is to talk about our relationships to people outside of our friendships. Jesus starts talking about three groups of people. I don't know if you picked that up from the the passage we read, but I'm going to kind of point us to it. And right away, he shares with us how he expects us to treat those people. And I want to warn you, it's kind of rough, so hold on because it's going to get a little uncomfortable. The first group of people are those who oppose us, people who are against us, people who have wronged us. And that's why we see it say, love your enemies, those who hate you, those who curse you. Hating and cursing means they've got it in for you. They don't like you at all. And Jesus says, I want you to love them. I want you to care for them. I want you to pray for them. Do whatever it is that you can do, as much as it is within your your power and in your grasp, be good to them. You know, a number of years ago, we had a, a summer kickoff. And, and I, want, I want to assure you, this doesn't often happen in Metro, but uh, we had a summer kickoff and a dispute happened sort of around the corner where we were having our barbecue. And, and we have a community with lots of kids and stuff. So this is, this is a traumatic event for us. But around the corner, two people from our community who were street entrenched got into an argument. And one of them uh, started beating the other guy up. And it was a big height and weight differential and the little guy got really badly beaten up and a couple of guys from our community saw it happening and they ran around the building to try and stop it and in that exchange the guy who was the aggressor pulled out a big pair of scissors and stabbed the other two guys there was blood everywhere it was all over the media because they chased the guy through you know town to a pub and somebody filmed it on their phone then it went on castanet it was like the worst ever commercial for a church you know and uh we're not seeker-friendly that way. Uh, so, uh, and so, you know, it's quite a serious deal. Now, here's the interesting thing. Uh, those two guys had surgery. They got stitched up. And on Monday morning, they were in our ministry center, in our drop-in space. And uh, they were there with their, their casts on and their bandages on. And uh, the guy who'd done the stabbing had been arrested. And his wife came in. And we always start our day with prayer and we're just kind of, there's about 30 people in the room. We're about to open the coffee bar and get things going and we start our day with prayer and the wife walks in you could feel the whole room go tense. Here's the two guys. Her husband just stabbed them the day before. The wife walks in. Everyone's on tenterhooks like, what's going to happen? And she looks at them and she just bursts into tears and she says, would you please forgive my husband? She said, I'm so sorry. I I can't even begin to tell you how distraught I am. Would you please forgive him? And before she even finished saying what she had to say, the two guys got up and they went and hugged her. And they said, it's already done. It's already forgiven. We can forgive because we know we're forgiven. It's done. It's over. The second group that Jesus refers to are those less fortunate than us. If you read this, there's a tendency when it says, if someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic to stick that sentence with what came before, in which case it looks like it's saying when someone robs you, say, oh, by the way, uh, I know you're robbing me. Behind this picture is a safe. Help yourself to all this stuff as well. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not really what's going on here because the sentence actually goes grammatically and logically with what comes after, not what comes before. 
Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others, this is the part that follows, as you would have them do to you. What it means is if someone comes to you and says, I'm in need, you're supposed to be promiscuously and radically generous. You don't often hear generosity and promiscuous together, but I think it works. Um, You know, our community have been my teachers in matters of generosity. I've watched people give like you wouldn't imagine. You know, so many people in our church are on welfare, but I've watched people when there's a single mom in need, and you know, like just get up and walk to the front and empty their pockets of everything they have. You know, in 20 minutes once, we, we raised three months rent for a single mom who was about to be evicted. I watched a, a couple go to the front. They'd been given a, a car. They had come out. She was out of prostitution and he was out of jail and they had come to know Jesus and they were working one of, in one of our social enterprises and, and they were doing really well and they'd been gifted a little car and that car had broken down and now they couldn't get to work and they were just sharing the need for mechanical kind of assistance. And I watched a middle class member of our church get up, not walk to the front, but waited till they were done and we finished praying for them. And he walked to them at the back and he took his car keys out of his pocket. And I know what car he had and it wasn't old. It was only two or three years old. And he just took the car keys out and he pressed them in their hands and just said, here, this is for you. I don't know how many of us would do that. I don't know what car you drove in here today. Would you be prepared to just give it to somebody else in need? Just give it. Uh, This week I've been challenged. I was approached by a single mom in Rutland who's not even part of our church. But she's gone to a number of churches in our city and they've all turned her down. And she's gone to a bunch of social agencies and they've all turned her down. Because she has a broken relationship with her boyfriend and her boyfriend had put the utilities bill in her name because she had a credit score and he didn't. And now she has a bill, $5,000 with Fortis. Here's the problem. She's in supportive housing. And if she and they've cut off her utilities. If you don't pay your utilities, supportive housing with BC Housing evicts you. The problem goes further because if you're evicted, then the Ministry of Children and Family Development comes in and they will remove your child. So now she's facing not just eviction and debt, but she's going to lose the custody of her daughter. She's not in addiction. She's not in a, in a, you know, any kind of abusive or situation. She's just poor. She's a single mom who's struggling. She has FAS, fetal alcohol syndrome. And so it's hard for her to hold down a job. So this week I've been challenging churches and social agencies to band together and not to bail her out completely because she has to face the consequences of her overspending and her inability to pay her bills. But could we just figure out a way to get Fortis back on board? Could we get some people to say, hey, we'll cover half the debt. Could we convince Fortis to, instead of saying, no, we're not going to do anything, could they just agree to a two-year payment plan? Practical, important details that will change her life. Could we get her into a financial management program? We have one at Metro called Launch Kelowna. Could she get into one of those things that teaches her how to manage her money better? I think we can. I think you could be a part of that solution. Maybe God's stirring your heart right now, and you're like, yeah, I could make a difference in her life. Jesus isn't talking about large gifts to the poor or turkey dinners at Christmas. He's calling us to a simple way. He's calling us to a daily way. A moral concern that will express itself in the spirit of self-denial in every encounter of life. 
that we might be able to do this for the sake of the kingdom of God. A spirit of self-denial that appears in every interaction that we have. And here's what it means. It means that you're so concerned for people who have less than you that you don't even go out and buy a chair without thinking about them. You say, okay, I'm going to go buy a chair. I need an office chair. I'm going to go buy a chair. But I'm going to make sure I buy a chair in such a way that I have money to give away to someone else who might need one like this. Jesus says, listen, it's going to affect everything if you choose to live this way. Not just your outer coat, but your tunic, your inner coat too. It's a way of saying that every single part of your life be oriented towards radical, infectious, promiscuous generosity. And here's the last group Jesus is talking about, and it's subtle. He talks about people who are indifferent and different. And if you look at the rest of this, it says, if you love those who love you, if you love those who can be good to you, if you love those who can repay you, so what's Jesus talking about? Then he says, even sinners, even sinners, even sinners. And here's what I think he's getting at. He says, I want you to be kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. You might think here I'm referencing some kind of a drug dealer or a prostitute or a hell's angel biker, but I'm not. And they might be ungrateful and scary at times, and I should know because many of them are my friends. But I've discovered over the years that most of my friends are just relationally destitute and scared and tired and lonely and confused. At the very best, people don't respect them very much. At the very worst, people think they are the problem in society. But actually, I'm thinking about the entitled ones. I'm thinking about people who have homes and jobs, cars, worldly power, prestige. I will readily admit to you, these are the people I find hardest to let into my life. These are the ones I find hardest to partner with, uh, to love, to meet, to befriend, to hang out with, to invite into my home. And I know that you know some of these people. You may be thinking, some of these people are friends of mine. I see them at the office or when I play golf or I see them, they live down my street. But they're not like you, but you actually think of them as kind of strange in many ways or even people that you might not even really respect. And if you're like me, you might be civil to them, but you don't do for them. You don't do good. You don't put yourself out for them. You don't put your home out for them, your wallet out for them, your heart out for them, your life out for them. After all, most of us hang out with people who are like us. People we respect, people we get along with easily. And then Jesus comes along and says here, of course, everybody's like that. Everybody does that. That's the gist of what he's saying. He's saying absolutely everybody does this. And by the way, when when Jesus uses the word sinners here, he's throwing this notion upside down. It's another one of his upside down kingdom ways of speaking. He says, you know... um, Pharisees, the establishment, the church of that time, when they used the word sinners, they were talking about immoral, uh, irreligious people. Prostitutes, tax collectors, Roman collaborators, stuff like that. Jesus, and the Bible actually puts the, the word sinners in inverted commas when Jesus uses the word. Because he doesn't actually divide the world into sinners and nice religious people. So what he means then is that he is talking to the kind of people who use the word like that. He's talking to the Pharisees and the ultra-religious people. And what he's saying to them is absolutely everybody does what you're doing. Absolutely everybody surrounds themselves with people who are just like them. We walk into a room and we look around the room at a party or an event and we scan the room to think, okay, who's here that I can get along with? Who's here that I feel comfortable with? Who's here that I can just align myself with and I can sit in the corner with? Who can I associate with? 
And Jesus is saying everybody does that. We make our associations in all aspects of life this way. We ask, us, we ask ourselves these questions like, are these the kind of people who make me feel like I'm a decent person? Or that I have the right ideas? That I have the right beliefs, the right doctrines, the right practices? And Jesus says, you're all the same. I have spent a decade sitting on street corners and in alleyways and places with my friends who are vulnerable and poor and watch people avoid us. Now, it's interesting. Sometimes in the winter, I'll have a big coat on and a toque and, you know, I kind of blend in. My beard gets a little bushy or whatever and I, you know, I look a bit like I belong in that setting. And it's really interesting when then somebody recognizes me I watch people pick up their kids to cross the street to avoid being near me and my friends. Or then they'll come around a corner and feel a bit taken aback and then they see my face and they go, Oh, Pastor Laurie. And I wonder, hey, would you have greeted my friends with the same trust if I wasn't here? It's a challenge. It's a real challenge. Jesus contrasts this three ways. He says, here's how sinners do it. Here's how religious people do it. And here's how you as a follower of me, as Christians, need to be different from both of those. I'm calling you to a different way, an upside down kingdom way. Jesus says, this is how I want you to live. Lives of promiscuous generosity. I want you to be people who are deliberately able to love without any disrespect to live and share with and serve people who are utterly different than you. You know, uh, we uh, went 18 months as a church without anywhere to be based. Our center downtown was torn down and we, were, we had no place to go. I had multiple conversations with landlords. Some people were nice, some people not so nice, uh, saying, hey, no, we don't really want you. We know who your community are. We don't really want you here. Some people said it nicely, some people didn't. 18 months... And then God radically, miraculously provided a home for us. In a short space of time, we, we got, our, our elders were praying and we had a picture of God saying, I'm going to move you. 18 hours later, we get a phone call from a couple, not even part of our church, and they say, we want to buy you a building to do ministry in. And we're like, what? What are the strings? No strings. God gifted us a space, an incredible space. Here's the interesting part of the story. It used to be a brothel. It used to be a massage parlor used to be called indiscretions. I think I have a picture of what it looks like today. Today it is a place where God's people are doing life in a way that just blows your mind. Where there's redemption and restoration and hope and love. Don't worry, we prayed through every room. We're developing a garden, a courtyard, a sanctuary, a safe place for people to hang out. People are... People are there every day. Coffee is being served. Community and connection happens. You'll find people doing art and displaying their art in a little gallery or playing and laughing or being on a computer or watching a soccer game because it's the World Cup or having a Bible study or seeking pastoral care and advice or just getting some new clothes that they needed for free or calling a loved one on the phone across the country to let them know they're still alive or getting medical help with one of the nurses dropping in. Or even having a bit of a snooze on a couch because they've been up for three nights without sleep. Most of our volunteers are from within our church family. But this is really interesting. It's fascinating. It's heartbreaking. But I find that many non-Christians are so willing to come and volunteer. But it's like pulling teeth with people from other churches. People from, from 
places that claim to follow Jesus. They're so scared. Jesus says, if you love only those who love you, what credit is that to you? And if you only do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Three times he says, what benefit is that to you? It's a little ambiguous. What does it mean? What credit, what benefit? And then uh, in the new uh, NIV says credit. The ESV says benefit. Both are kind of trying to be ambiguous and ought to be ambiguous because it's very interesting and profound and pregnant. And Jesus actually is saying, if you love those who love you, what grace is there in that? Because the word that he uses doesn't translate well into English. It's the word charis. And that is the word uh, for grace. In the New Testament, that kind of directly translated means unmerited love. And when he says, if you only love those who love you, where is the unmerited love in that? In other words, when you love your own kind and not others, when you love people who are giving you some kind of emotional payoff or some kind of social payoff, they're helping you socially or they're helping you in some kind of way of building your self-esteem. You have to be careful, says Jesus. Jesus says, if we love people because of what they profit us, then we're not loving them at all. We're loving what they give us, but we're not loving them. We're loving for the sake of our own egos, and we're using them to fulfill that. We're not loving people for their sakes. We're loving them for our sake. In fact, we're not loving them at all. And because of that inner love deficit, that inner grace deficit, we're going to have to experience an ocean of unmerited love if we're going to be able to give it. Years ago, at the very beginning of the Metro story, I made some terrible mistakes as a pastor. I was on staff at Willow Park, so I blame them. And, uh, and I, was, I was out downtown, 3 o'clock in the morning, had my truck, and I was handing out blankets because I just thought that was the right thing to do. I didn't really know anything about the street community. I was ignoring all of the good protocols of being a pastor. I'm on my own. I find a girl in an alcove dying of hypothermia, and she was coming off crystal meth, and she was waiting for her boyfriend, who was also her pimp, to come back with some more meth, and she was literally dying. It was minus 20. She's in a tank top, and I'm, I'm rubbing her arms in the shadow of this dark alcove, you know, at three o'clock in the morning. If anyone had driven by, they'd be like, hmm, what's that pastor doing? And, uh, and eventually, I convinced her to get into my truck and took her to hospital, and she survived. The story has a really sad ending because she lost her life months later. But it really changed my, my life radically. I, I, I wrote a, a huge letter to this church at that time, all of the campuses. And I, I kind of just had a bit of a Jerry Maguire, bad pizza manifesto moment overnight. If you haven't seen that movie, you don't understand the reference. And, uh, and I, and, but the, the, the lead pastor at the time read that letter out on Sunday morning and it changed my life. It changed the life of many because... God used it to challenge people to say, hey, how are we going to live? And I don't believe it was me writing that at the time. But let's look at the how we do this. Because something has to change. So what is it? And it's in verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. If you know anything about Old Testament kind of thinking and, and biblical thinking, to be a son of was the place of honor, that you'd be in a place of honor of the Most High. If you can get a hold of that verse, believe it, know it, have it sink down into the depths of your heart, take it into the center of your life, then you'll have a dynamic from which you can move out and do what Jesus is talking about. You'll want to do it. You'll actually be able to take steps. You don't need people to instruct you with a A, B, and C, this is how you love people. You'll just be able to do it. 
And if you don't believe that verse, if you don't understand what's in it, then everything Jesus calls you to at best will be impossible and at worst will be dangerous garbage, stuff that you want to reject at all costs. But what if we understand what's in here? Well, here's a word of caution. In English, it looks like it says, if I give love, then I'll become a son of God. But that's not what it says in the Greek at all. What Jesus is doing here is is he's inviting his disciples to actualize the meaning of their relationship. He's explaining that they are adopted. Now, 80% of people in our community have gone through the foster care system. Uh, And and so that's a huge high number. Uh, We have a church family now that kind of numbers somewhere around three to 400 people, if everyone actually showed up at one time, if we could ever keep track of everybody. But probably seven out of 10 people at Metro have come to know Jesus in the last decade. We're a really young church in terms of faith. And Paul in Galatians 4 says, even though everybody is a creation of God and therefore loved and valued by God, it's an act of grace when we're adopted. To be adopted means something very important. And that's the background to everything the New Testament understands about a relationship with God. Adoption is at the core. First of all, it's a legal grace. We might be penniless, but the moment that we get our adoption papers, suddenly, even though we haven't done anything to earn it, automatically we are rich. We are inheritance of God's kingdom. We have an intimacy with our Father, accessibility to our Father. We're loved unconditionally by our Father. But here's the thing. We were also an enemy to our Father. We've rejected him. We've resented him. And even as he's tried to woo us, we have, we have pushed him away. And our efforts have actually been about trying to get control of God and get control over him to do things for us. A Christian is somebody who says, man, I'm an enemy of God, but I'm adopted by him. And when we put those two things together, it's, uh, everything in this passage in Luke 6 starts to flow together. It's this fascinating concept. And our hearts need to be melted by this truth. Where do we see God being really kind to the ungrateful and the wicked? On the cross. That's where we see God being kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. To you. To me. On the cross. Because on the cross we see Him cursed, but He's blessing others. On the cross, we see him mistreated, but he's praying for others. Jesus is not just saying, be like this because I'm like this. He says, be like this because I'm going to be like this for you. Let's just think about this for a second. What did loving us do for Jesus, for his social standing? See, Jesus didn't get anything out of us. He went infinitely down. He came from heaven to earth, as the song says. He came from earth and went to the grave. He went all the way down. What did Jesus get from us psychologically? What did it do for his self-esteem? The Bible says he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That doesn't sound like he, he somehow profited. Here's Jesus who looks at us and he loves us. Not only did he get nothing out of us, but he got exactly the opposite of what we seek to get out of our relationships. Look at verses 27 through 29. They sound like they're basically saying, hey, you can just walk all over me. Hit me again. I'll turn the other cheek. Take advantage of me. But there's a contrast here. At the beginning of the the book of Luke, Jesus says, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who grieve, blessed are those who are rejected, woe to the rich, woe to those in power. Jesus is calling about justice. Jesus is saying we have to oppose injustice. But in doing so, we have to turn the other cheek. Jesus is saying, I want you to oppose injustice, but I want you to do it without any inner ego. You've been insulted, so what? 
I want you to oppose injustice, but you don't go out to slap them back. You oppose injustice for the sake of justice. You oppose injustice out of love for the perpetrator. I've been reading a great book called uh, Barking to the Choir by Greg Boyle. He's, he leads a, a very cool community in Los Angeles uh, called Homeboy Industries, working with Latino gangs. And there's just one quote in one of his books that I just love. And it's, I get asked this question all the time. They're like, don't you feel like you're being taken advantage of by people? And he comes up with a beautiful response. He says, how can I be taken advantage of? I am giving the advantage away. I can't be taken advantage of. I give it away. Willingly. Opposing injustice has led us to form social enterprise businesses, to turn the other cheek when contracts fail because we hire homeless people. Opposing injustice has led us to courtrooms to advocate for our friends when no one else will show up for them. Opposing injustice has led us to open a safe center for women at risk, and those in the sex trade in our city. Opposing injustice has led us to engage the very perpetrators of that injustice with love and dialogue, seeking reconciliation and restoration on behalf of the most vulnerable in our community. You oppose injustice for its sake, for the person's sake, for everyone else's sake. You never do it simply to say, I'm going to make that person feel bad. I'm going to make that person know they were wrong. In other words, Jesus says, none of this slapping stuff. It's exactly the opposite of how you and I do it. I have learned truth-telling from our community, from brutal honesty to testimony, open mics on Sundays to people just marching into my office. Not that I really have much of an office, but, you know, wherever I'm sitting, telling me the truth straight to my face. Oftentimes, I'll finish preaching a sermon, and I'll walk down, they're like, yeah, I did not agree with you at all. That was terrible, you know, and we get into a really meaningful dialogue. But our community does not have time for niceties. They will tell it to me straight. I love that. It's rescued me so many times. I always know where I stand with our people. Most of us need to start telling the truth to people who have hurt us after we've worked on our own heart with forgiveness. And then we go to them for their sake. Friends, the only way to beat injustice is not to be bitter. The only way to really beat injustice is to utterly forgive it and then oppose it with a certain amount of joy. I've watched people, uh, I know I've gone way over time, but I've watched people do incredible things like this. A guy in our community, when, way back when, we were just being uh, approved as a church in the MB conference. We went to the big annual conference, and you're supposed to stand up and give like a five-minute speech about what our church is and what the flavor of our church is and the DNA. And I brought a member of our community, a First Nations guy who had been on our streets of Kelowna since he was 15 years old. And he had come to know Jesus. And he stood up with me. I said, hey, tell him a bit of your story. Because I thought it would be really exciting for the MB conference to hear that. It would give him a flavor. So he starts to tell a story. We were at a church in Abbotsford, a big MB church. And he starts to tell a story of how he was homeless. And in the winter, he'd be shivering and his body be racked, you know, in pain. And people were like sobbing and they were moved. And he said, in this one time, Christmas Eve, I was outside on the doorstep of a church and and, and it was snowing and it was cold and and I looked inside and they were having this amazing service and, and and I was just clear I wasn't welcome and then when they were done they shut the doors and I was cold and I said could I have something and they said no I'm sorry it's Christmas Eve we're all going home and they shut the doors and in fact when I was sleeping on the doorstep they said hey by the way you can't sleep here you gotta move on 
And he's telling this story. There's like 300 delegates. Some people are weeping and you can see heads shaking like, oh, no. And then he drops this bomb. I didn't know about it. I was terrified. He goes, and that was this church. I was like, what? No. We're just supposed to be approved as a church. Don't do this. You just killed us. They're going to vote no. Start right now. You're like trying to rewind. Oh, thanks, man. Okay, off the stage. But people were weeping. It was powerful. I love that about truth-telling. Jesus was the good Samaritan. He was the true good neighbor. And so we're quick to say, love your neighbor. It's so vague and pious when we say it. What does it actually mean? Your neighbor, Jesus says, is anyone you share God's green earth with. But as a church, I think we're called to go further than that. We're supposed to go out and to invite the most vulnerable into our center to make ourselves uncomfortable on purpose. And when we do, we experience a very special and radical encounter with God's grace and power. Uh, we, we have a new home. God has seen it fit to grant us a new building. Uh, we're, we haven't fully paid for it yet. We're still trying to figure that out, but we can't even believe that we figured a, a way to actually purchase it and get, get the space. And, and, and it's a permanent home for Metro. And uh, it's a it's huge challenge. Uh, not that one. Keep going. That one. That's uh, what used to be the food bank on Ellis, 10,000 square feet, where we can do ministry with other organizations and... Uh, don't have time to tell you, but it's just an amazing story of God's provision. But it challenges us because that's the fastest growing corner of real estate in all of interior BC. How did God make it possible for us to be there? There's 6,000 new residents moving into within a 200-yard radius of that building in the next two years. What is God up to? So look around your neighborhood. Do you just go after the Christians? Do you, do you know your neighbors? Business owners, social agency workers, low-income couples trying to pay bills down the street here. The pothead two doors down who plays hip-hop too loudly on youth nights. What about the girl who works the streets in this neighborhood for survival sex, simply to pay rent in one of these basement suites because her body is the last and best option for revenue generation and income. Jesus says you need to treat each one as if they were me, says Jesus. Find them. Look for deliberate reasons to be for the common good of your neighborhood. Allow yourself to be inconvenienced, uncomfortable. Love them, serve them, and become a place of belonging and comfort. You know, Willow Park, like Metro, is an MB church. Our heritage as Anabaptists is that we were often the objects of persecution by the state. Persecuted wherever they lived. Our forefathers in the MB church wrote a lot about Christ's suffering. They also shared materially with each other. And they placed a lot of emphasis on helping the needy. And in 18, uh, 1560, Menno Simons, one of the founders of the MB Church movement, said, True evangelical faith cannot lie dormant. It clothes the naked. It comforts the sorrowful. It shelters the destitute. It serves those that harm it. It binds up that which is wounded. It seeks those who are lost. It becomes all things to all people. Imitating Jesus, being a good neighbor means so many things, but I'll just throw a couple of final suggestions. We don't have time to unpack them and then I'll wrap up. But especially with those who are most vulnerable, these things will radically change your church and community, our city, this neighborhood. And it will place you in conversations and places you couldn't imagine. Opportunities to announce the upside down kingdom of God in ways you couldn't perceive. The way of Jesus is where we practice generous and life-sustaining hospitality, 
where we practice being present with one another, a deep and particularizing way of listening and asking, a place where we respect the dignity and mystery and uniqueness of our neighbor, where we call one another to a deeper walk of repentance and surrender, into a, uh, into a place where there's a formation and maturity with Jesus. And when we do so, we discover that the character of God is to reveal himself through and in the least likely. I have so many stories about that. I'm sorry, we don't have time. But the world doesn't understand that stuff. You know the story, let me finish with this, the story of the Good Samaritan. So common, churches talk about it all the time. You, I'm sure you know it. The Jew is bleeding I don't know if you remember this, he's in the road, and along comes the Samaritan, and they hate each other. Jesus might as well have said, you know what, there's a Ku Klux Klan guy, and he's bleeding, and he's lying in the road, and an African-American guy comes along. You tell that story in a black church in the South, in the U.S., you get a reaction. Or maybe you say a Nazi's lying in the road, bleeding and dying, and a, a Jew comes along, and you tell that story in a synagogue. He's trying to say absolutely anybody in your road is now a neighbor because you were anybody to me, says God. And look what I did for you. Talk about announcing God's kingdom. You want resources for social justice? You want resources for bringing down barriers? Nothing will do for that like this will. If you want to announce God's kingdom in this community, in this neighborhood right here, in our city, then first you must be a neighbor. And to do that, you need a neighbor. This is the story of Jesus. This good Samaritan story is the story of Jesus. He's the one who comes along, as in that parable, and you were lying on that road. And what does he do? He gets down and he puts you up where he was. He puts you on his steed. And he goes down on the ground in your place. That's what Jesus did. We're lying on the road. He puts us up and he gives us his status. He gives us his standing. He gives us his righteousness. He gives us his place and then he takes ours. And until we are amazed by the mercy that he gives, we will never be empowered to provide the mercy he requires. Amen? Yeah, would you bow your heads with me? I'll invite the worship team to come. Father God, we, uh, we are challenged. I am challenged by these words. I know that so often I surround myself with people who don't push me into a place of discomfort enough. There are days in which I am convinced I'm doing enough. But it's not because of what we do in terms of earning but it's because of that radical, unbelievably generous mercy and grace. Father, that we are invited to simply respond to what you have done for us. Father, I know there are so many things in this where we could look at ourselves and say we fall short, but I don't believe that's your heart for us today. I don't believe your heart is one that condemns. I believe your heart is one that exhorts, it's, it's one that encourages, it's one that says, this is my plan for you, this is my heart for you. You were lying on the side of the road and I came along and I lifted you up and I took your place.
I gave myself so that you might have everything. Now go and do the same. Go and do the same for others so that they might know of my love. Surround yourself with people who make you uncomfortable, people who dislike you, people who you dislike, people who will curse you, people who will hate you. Find ways to include them in your life. Find ways to love them because I have loved you first and you despised me, says God. You spurned me. You spat at me. You crucified me. But I came to you. I didn't improve my standing. I didn't improve my lot, my esteem. I didn't improve anything about my circumstances. Instead, I went down into separation and darkness so that you might have life forever in all of its fullness for all of time that you would know that I am God, that I love you, that you are my beloved. There's not a person on the streets around this church, around your home, who is not the beloved of Jesus. Your life will not have full meaning, says Jesus, until they are part of yours. Until you sacrifice for them because Jesus says, that is what I have done for you. Be bold. Be brave. Don't look for directions. Just do it. Just love. If you can give them not just your cloak, but your tunic also. And you will see great things. Great things, says Jesus. Because my spirit is at work in the world and you were designed to work in partnership with my spirit. You were designed to be one with me. Now go and do the same. Lord Jesus, might we have courage and boldness and the grasp of your mercy that melts our hearts and radically changes us so that we can do that in your name. Not for our glory. It's going to make us poorer. It's going to make us more uncomfortable. It's going to disadvantage us. But we're going to choose to give that advantage away, Lord. Because that's what you did. And in doing that, we can know you. Maybe for the first time. And if you are here this morning and this is the first time you've ever grasped this or the first time you've ever heard this or the first time you've ever even thought about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, then know this, that as you step into this, there is no secret formula. There's no secret prayer. God wants to meet you right now, right here where you are. And if you have not surrendered yourself to this life, I just want to urge you to do it now. Don't waste another moment. I had a friend die last night in a car crash. He does not have another moment. He gave his life to Jesus. You will leave here right now in a few minutes and I don't know how many moments and minutes and seconds you have. So surrender, please, yourself to Jesus right now. Don't waste another moment. Lord Jesus, you are so good. We trust you and we love you. Amen.